If you would take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 5. Matthew's Gospel, chapter number 5. I'm excited to begin today a series of sermons in the Sermon on the Mount. I am rather proud of your church staff. We set out in the beginning of 2020 to memorize together the Sermon on the Mount, and we are now well into chapter 7, and they are doing splendidly. I would commend that effort to you to set aside the next year, perhaps, to memorize a few verses a day of the Sermon on the Mount, and I want you to know that that process of memorizing the Sermon on the Mount and the accountability that's come with, the encouragement that's come with, uh, reciting those verses in Monday staff meetings has been tremendously helpful for me in, in both hiding the the word of God away in my heart that I might not sin against him, but also understanding the depths of what Jesus is describing in such simple and yet profound statements like those that we're going to be reading together this morning. We're going to be looking today at what is commonly referred to as the Beatitudes, those blessing statements of Jesus in the first few verses, verses 1 through 10 of Matthew 5, this beginning point of the Sermon on the Mount. And I, I, wa I want you to note and hold in your memory for the next several weeks how the Beatitudes or these statements of blessing are laying the foundation for everything that Jesus is going to say later. I have often thought of the Sermon on the Mount as the constitution of the kingdom of God. Jesus is setting forward this foundation for a new kingdom inaugurated and established by his blood. A kingdom that already is and yet is to come. If it's appropriate that we think of the Sermon on the Mount as the constitution of the kingdom that is to come, the Beatitudes serve or function as the preamble to the constitution. So we're going to see something of a foundation being established for us in the verses we're going to look at this morning. If you found your way to Matthew chapter 5, I want to invite you to stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's word. We'll read together Matthew 5 verses 1 through 10. The Bible says, beginning in verse 1, When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. After he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, The poor in spirit are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Those who mourn are blessed, for they will be comforted. The gentle are blessed, for they will inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, for they will be filled. The merciful are blessed, for they will be shown mercy. The pure in heart are blessed, for they will see God. The peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called the sons of God. Those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed, for theirs is the kingdom, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, or for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his words. You may be seated. In all likelihood, you are familiar with the Beatitudes in a different translation than the one we just read, right? It's even hard for me to read. I jumbled up the last verse, reciting the verse, rather than reading what's in the translation. Here the language of blessing is at the end of each stanza rather than in the beginning. Rather than blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We read the poor in spirit are blessed. 
There are slightly different terms used in our translation to describe what Jesus uh, says here is the blessed condition or the blessed happy state. For instance, in verse 5, the Bible says here, the gentle are blessed. You're probably more accustomed to blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But hopefully that won't be too much of a stumbling block to you, but will provide you with a little better understanding of what is in essence being communicated in the original text or in Jesus' original communication. In verse 1 of our passage, the Bible notes that Jesus saw the crowds and he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. This is one of those examples of Jesus withdrawing to some degree from the mass multitude in order to invest more privately in his disciples. There seems to be some indication that other believers had joined together with the 12 disciples, but this seems in any event to be a smaller group of people who gathered to Jesus on the mountain to hear this specific set of teachings, a set of teachings that Jesus would offer not just once in the Sermon on the Mount, but at least two times as Luke records a Sermon on the Plains that holds for us much of the same content as the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. The fact that Jesus speaks on the mountain helps us not only to understand the geographic location for Jesus' teaching, it's also a literary note, highlighting the importance of what is to come after. Matthew might just as well have left off that little detail that Jesus issued these teachings from the mountain, but it seems to be an indicator for us of something of the importance of what Jesus is going to say here. There are three mountaintop experiences in the Gospel of Matthew. The first is here in the Sermon on the Mount. The second is on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus, Peter, James, and John go up to meet with Elijah and Moses. Jesus is transfigured before Peter, James, and John there in fellowship with Elijah and Moses. They see something of the fullness of the glory of Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. And then in the conclusion of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus withdraws, the resurrected Jesus Christ withdraws with his disciples to the mountains of Galilee where he says to them, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When Matthew describes for us a mountaintop experience, it does not disappoint. So when Jesus withdraws here, and Matthew notes for us that Jesus is withdrawing to the mountains, it's a literary indication for us that what follows is of great importance. There's another indicator, but we'll get to that one in just a few moments. Verse 2 says, He began to teach them, saying, The poor in spirit are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now here's what Jesus begins to do, and we're going to see this all the way through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins to take the way we see the world, the way we think about life, our whole worldview, turn it upside down, and sit it on its head. Sometimes writers will talk about the upside down kingdom. We see things from our perspective as right side up, where the happy are those who are rich, those kept from grief, those who are assertive, those satisfied in abundance, cold and calculating at times, objective in their ways, unhindered by antiquated religious convictions, untouched by conflict. 
However, Jesus paints a remarkably different portrait of how things operate in the kingdom. The constitution of the kingdom of God is written rather differently than the structures of this world. In the kingdom, things are upside down from the way we've come to understand them in the here and now. In the kingdom, the way up is down. The way forward is back. The way to be first is to be last. The way to be master is to be servant of all. The kingdom does not function. The kingdom does not operate the way this world operates. And so we see things in a fundamentally different way. Jesus has already indicated this in the very first of eight Beatitudes. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, I said to you a moment ago, there, there are two expressions of essentially the same sermon in the Gospels. There is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And then there is the Sermon on the Plains in Luke 6 and following. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is a lot more popular than the Sermon on the Plains. I think in our culture, there's a good reason for that. I want to invite you for just a moment to turn over to Luke chapter 6 and verse number 20. Now I want us to compare Jesus' beatitude in the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plains and hopefully get the essence of what Jesus is communicating not just in this first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, but in all of the beatitudes. I think it will be readily apparent why Matthew's version is more popular than Luke's. Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And immediately, we're able to separate the language of poverty from the material realm of our life. We're able to say that what Jesus is describing here is metaphorical. Blessed are those who are downtrodden or discouraged or just depressed to some extent. Blessed are those. It affords us the privilege of holding fast to our material wealth and the creature comforts we so enjoy in our culture. But he says more plainly in Luke's version, or Luke chapter 6, verse 20, looking up at his disciples, he said, You who are poor are blessed because the kingdom of God is yours. And just in case that's not clear enough to understand what Jesus is driving at, he says in verse 24, the contrasting verse, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. No wonder Matthew's version is more popular than Luke's. It makes no place for our creature comforts and our material possessions. Jesus is driving at the same concept that's behind the statement, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is calling us here to a mentality, a spirit of poverty. Now, most of us are middle-class people. In fact, all of us are middle-class people. Whether we want to confess that or not, we're all middle-class people. Some of you would regard yourselves as somewhat lower than that, and some of you in your haughtiness would regard yourself as somewhat higher than that. But in the grand scheme of things, we're all middle-class people. And in the middle-class mentality, we operate according to sola bootstrapa. 
We just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. If we want something, we labor and we strive and we press and we strain until we achieve status or position or material wealth that affords us the ability to have what we are laboring to have. In fact, I think it is one of the truly wonderful things about the United States of America that you can pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, strive and labor and strain, and within reason, achieve the hopes and dreams of childhood. That's a real possibility in our society and a possibility that ought to be greatly celebrated. But there are parts of the world and there are people for which this is not a reality. No matter how much laboring, striving, and straining is done on their part, they will never move beyond their rung on the social or economic ladder. When you know true poverty, you have come to the realization that you do not personally possess the means to pull yourself up by the proverbial bootstraps. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's speaking to a foundational understanding that underlies our appreciation for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the gospel is not about pulling ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not about growing up, wising up, strengthening ourselves, or even improving upon our education or social standing. The gospel is about coming to the full realization that we are spiritually bankrupt. We are impoverished and, impoverished and only someone outside of ourselves can change our standing in life and in the world. This is the nature of the gospel. What Jesus is calling us to do over and over and over again in each of these eight beatitudes is to completely divorce ourselves from the things of this world. To separate ourselves from what so grabs at our attention and pulls gravitationally on our hearts, what gets its hooks into us. Divorce yourself from the things of this world. Now, we see these things as advantages. We see our material wealth, the comforts we enjoy as real advantages, but the gospel paints them as hindrances to our ability to understand the full magnitude of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We could not afford the price of salvation. We are bankrupt, indebted with a debt that we could not repay. And yet God, in what can only be described as amazing grace, would send his son to pay the penalty for our sin that we might not only be forgiven, but that we might be accredited with his son's righteousness. We have, through no effort of our own, not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, not pressing through misfortunate or unfortunate situations, not laboring through some hardships, through no effort of our own, been rescued, plucked out of the kingdom of darkness and fixed into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. This is grace. Amen. This is grace. Brothers and sisters, this is grace. And if you're not careful... Your middle-class mentality will keep you from being able to see the amazingness of the grace that has been showed us through the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ. Amen. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Verse 4 says, those who mourn are blessed, for they will be comforted. Or, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. This is one of those writing on the wall moments. Remember, we're early in the public ministry of Jesus. I said to you a moment ago that the fact that Jesus withdraws to the mountain is indicative of, of not just where he is, his withdrawing from the multitudes. It's an indication that this is important. What follows after Matthew uses this as sort of a signpost. This is important content in the gospel. But it may also be indicative of something else. Revolutionaries in the ancient, in ancient Israel often operated out of the mountains of Galilee. If you were on the run or creating revolt, you would camp out in the mountains so as to avoid the authorities. There was something about being in the mountains that was almost covert. Now whether Matthew intends that there or not, I'm uncertain. But Jesus is in a not so subtle way saying in the first two Beatitudes that there's a new sheriff in town. That things are changing drastically. Do you remember when Jesus goes to Nazareth and he preaches in the synagogue and he's handed the scroll, the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads a few short verses, very brief sermon, but sets the city on its ear? He reads from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, and here's what the scripture says. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me. This is about the Messiah. Jesus reads this passage as his own. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Blessed are those who mourn to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. And on and on it reads. In two Beatitudes, Jesus has alluded to that statement from Isaiah 61, and no disciple would have missed it. He's put the writing on the wall that the days of the old kingdom are done. There's a new sheriff in town, and a new kingdom has come. Jesus is saying here in these two short verses, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit. That a new day has dawned. A new work has been done. That he's come to revolutionize the way we see the world. This is altogether different than everything that we've been taught and trained and understood in times past. The kingdom of God is altogether unlike the kingdom of this world. And the kingdom of God is victorious. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Verse 5 says, The gentle are blessed, or blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Matthew is the only gospel writer who uses the language of meekness in this way, the specific terminology of meekness. When Jesus comes riding later in the gospel of Matthew into the city of Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, he is said to come in a meek or mild manner. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, when Jesus describes his very heart, when Jesus says, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my burden is light and my yoke is easy. He speaks of his heart there as gentle and lowly or meek and lowly. 
And here Jesus says, blessed are the meek. We train our kids to be assertive, right? To be self-confident. My, my childhood days were the days of ensuring that all children had the appropriate degree of, of self-confidence. There was a whole vocabulary that went along with that. We wanted to build the self-esteem of children. And there's a certain level at which that's acceptable and even helpful and, and needed. Our society, we major on assertiveness, on pressing our way to the front of the line, on not being run over. Jesus says in the kingdom, meekness is valued. And, and meekness is, is best understood in the context of Jesus' life. Meekness in the kingdom, pressing forward in the kingdom, blessedness in the kingdom looks like coming as Lord of all and yet subjecting yourself as servant of all. Considering equality with God not as something to be used for your own advantage in the case of Jesus, but something to lay aside that in humiliation you would die for the sins of others in order that in the end you might be exalted and they might be raised with you. Meekness in the kingdom context means bearing with the suffering and the indignities and the hardships of the cross. Meekness is the perfect, Jesus is the perfect embodiment of, of meekness. And this is the kind of posture that Jesus intends that we would, would take. Jesus says in verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Actual, literal hunger and thirst are referenced in the Sermon on the Plains and Luke chapter 6, the idea here is more that there's a longing and a craving to be righteous, to be right, that the hunger in our belly and the thirst on our lips is to walk faithfully with the Lord Jesus Christ. In any event, it's not the kind of condition that would be celebrated in our society, and yet it is here. They will be filled. In verse 7, Jesus says, the merciful are blessed or blessed are the merciful. Behind the language of mercy here, I think there's so much more here than what we might see at first glance. The idea of, of kesed or covenant faithfulness in the Old Testament. What Jesus is describing is one who is careful to maintain faithfulness to the covenant relationship between himself and the God of heaven. When Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, he's not referencing here a surge of emotion that overcomes us in a moment when we see someone who's downcast or in a moment or season of, of some difficulty. He's talking about an intense kindness that is fueled by one's relationship with the God of heaven. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Jesus says in verse 8, the pure in heart are blessed, or blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This is not a verse about sexual purity, as purity so often is in the New Testament. This is about single-mindedness. The pure in heart are those who have fixed their gaze on Jesus, on the things of God, and they afford for no distractions whatsoever. Jesus is preeminent in their life. He is the goal and focus of all of their affections and all of their attention. They are laboring and striving for him and for him alone. Psalm 24, 4, the psalmist says that we ascend the hill of God with clean hands and a pure heart. That's the concept before us in verse 8. In verse 9, the Bible says, the peacemakers are blessed. 
for they'll be called the sons of God. Anytime I read that passage, I'm reminded of God's grace over my life. I think that's the first Bible verse that I ever knew. As an unbeliever, I became acquainted with that verse because it was crocheted and hanging inside the police station in my hometown. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. I'm not sure that Jesus had Earp's sidearm in mind when he said, Blessed are the peacemakers nor perhaps our local law enforcement officers as glad as we are to have them. We're thankful for those who serve in that way. Jesus is talking here about those who actively pursue the making of peace within the covenant community. Not, not, a, not a passive sitting aside and allowing that offenses happen to us or around us and just bearing with them so a certain degree of peace can be maintained, but one who is actively pursuing the making of peace within their own community. Brothers and sisters, we need to hear this message. This, this needs to burn deep in our heart in a day of such conflict where it's become almost characteristic of some Christians in certain circles to create conflict and to be troublesome. So much of that is the result of the fact that we have failed to divorce ourselves from the things of this world. We see ourselves as inseparably connected to every political and economic and social event of this world and therefore need to speak to every political and social and economic event of this world, creating further conflict. We need to be reminded that we are citizens of heaven, that our primary citizenship is not here, that though we pursue the peace of Babylon, our citizenship is elsewhere. Strive to make peace in Babylon as much as is possible, living at peace with all men. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. It's not a spiritual gift to stir up strife all the time. Social media has so enhanced our ability to do just that. Blessed are the peacemakers. And then in verse 10, the Bible says, those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. We, we look around the world and, and we, we, well, we look first at ourselves and we see ourselves in contrast to those who live in third world countries under great poverty, and we say, we're, we're blessed. And we look at our friends and neighbors who experience great loss, and they're grieving the loss of a loved one or a situation in their life, and we reflect on the fact that we may not be in that moment in their shoes, filled with grief and sadness, and we say, we are blessed. We look at the self-assertive, those who press their way to the front of the line and make a way in this world and achieve status and position, and we say, they're, they're blessed. They've, they've moved up. They've, they've pressed to the front of the line. They've made something of themselves. They've pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. We look at those who are filled, who live in comfort, who enjoy a level of material wealth that affords them the privilege of not worrying about how to pay their bills or whether they'll go to sleep that night or how they'll provide for the needs of their children or even how they'll have the next luxury car or luxury home. And we say, boy, they are blessed. 
We even look at celebrity figures who have cast off moral restraint, who live licentious lifestyles, careless of the concerns of God, and we say of them and the status they have achieved, they are blessed. We look across the world at Christian brothers and sisters who are living under the heavy hand of oppressive governments, and we say, we are blessed. And Jesus has just taken our entire framework for viewing the world and turned it on its head. Jesus says, blessed are the poor. And Jesus says, blessed are those who are hungry and blessed are those who are thirsty. And blessed are those who mourn. And blessed are those who've not cast off restraint, but who are pure of heart. They will see God. And yes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is such a radically different way of regarding the world, right? If you'll really think soberly, honestly, about what Jesus has just said, this will completely wreck the way you see life in general. And it's the ethical foundation for everything that comes after this in the Sermon on the Mount. If you fail to appreciate the depth of what Jesus is calling us to, to divorce ourselves from the things of this world, you will forever struggle with the ethical imperatives that come after in this passage. If you get to April 15th of next year, the day we all dread, right? If you get to April 15th and you realize that I, I, can, I can lie here, and, and I cannot pay the government an ungodly amount of money. Or I can tell the truth and pay the government an ungodly amount of money. The person who has divorced himself from the things of this world, whose identity is not bound up in material wealth or possessions, but is in Jesus Christ, can say with honesty and integrity, this is the truth, and now I'll hand over an ungodly amount of money. But if your identity is bound up in that material wealth, in your possessions, in your comforts, in the getting of stuff, you will be more inclined to fudge the numbers next April 15th than otherwise. For, for, for years, I, I, had, I had an accountant. Preacher taxes are, are different. And you get to the end, and there's always this false hope, right? You get to the end, and the reason preacher taxes are different, if you don't know how that works, is preacher taxes are kind of a combination of self-employment and W-2s like most people get. So, so we, we, do, we have to pay our full Social Security tax. That's more accounting information than you bargained for this morning, but it'll be helpful in understanding the illustration. We always get to the end, and, and she, would, she would say, this is the number. And Brandy would just be ecstatic, right? Because it would be close, almost not pay anything, maybe pay just a little bit, maybe even get a little bit back. And I'd always have to look at her and go, that ain't right, honey. And then you have to remind the accountant, you've got to put in the Social Security tax, and then you get this, this oh, it's just defeating. When this, when this long number is read off, you know, at that moment. But there's like a moment of decision. Do we correct the process? Keep the money? The IRS is always going to get you, right? They're like the devil. They, they see it all. Or will you be forthright and, and maintain our integrity? Now, that's kind of a funny example of how this works out financially and accounting, but there are a myriad of ways that this plays itself out in the later ethical teachings of Jesus in the passage. If your identity is bound up in the lust of the flesh, 
you will be inclined toward the sexual immorality that Jesus condemns. If your identity is bound up in personal pride and that personal pride is infringed upon, you will be inclined toward the kind of murderous heart that Jesus condemns in the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes are the foundation of all the ethical teachings that come later in the Sermon on the Mount. You must master this. Now let me ask you something. Are you, are you truly happy? I, I always try to listen to a few sermons from other brother pastors when I'm preparing to preach a message. One of the things that I found to be outstanding about Beatitude sermons is that preachers tended to spend this long period of time giving this great discourse on what it looks like or means to be happy, which I find to be a little silly. I think you know what happiness looks like. I think you know when you're happy. I think you know how it feels to be joyous, to be glad-hearted. And I want you to take note that what Jesus is saying here, happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are the meek. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Happy are the pure in heart. Happy are the peacemakers. Happy are those who extend mercy, the merciful. Happy are those who are persecuted. If you do these things, you will be happy. Those who would have issue with Christianity on a, on a philosophical basis, get, they, they point to passages like this and they say, this is your problem. You're always looking beyond the here and now toward some satisfaction or happiness and fulfillment that is to come. But what Jesus is prom promising here is not futuristic. It's immediate. When the future tense is used in our passage, it's only used to demonstrate the certainty with which Jesus speaks. The kingdom of heaven is theirs, not in the future. The kingdom of heaven is theirs in this moment. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the kingdom of heaven is, is theirs, it's ours at this moment. There is an immediate satisfaction and gladness of heart that comes first with acknowledging that God is pleased with us here. But even more than that, there is an abiding peace and joy and happiness that comes with acknowledging that Jesus is all we need. When we separate ourselves from the things of this world, our sufficiency, our happiness, our fulfillment, our our satisfaction bound up in Jesus. There is nothing that can take that away from us. Happy, happy. If you want to be happy, come to Jesus. Many of you are living in houses that you believed would make you happy. And by the time you got the first mortgage payment, you found that that would not prove to be the case. And a lot of you drove cars to church today that you believed would make you happy. And you're no better off today, spiritually or otherwise, than you were the day before you bought the car. The ride may be smoother, but life is just as miserable. And some of you have believed that your natural gifts and abilities would bring you happiness. If you could just exercise your talents, you could be brought happiness. Hear me, they are going away. Some of you young men were gifted and talented athletes. If it's not gone yet, it will. Some of you young ladies, beautiful. Some of you older ladies were younger ladies of great beauty. And you believed that your beauty, your outward appearance would, would make you happy. If there were the proper amount of affirmation of your outward beauty, your appearance could bring you joy and gladness. It's going away. And it'll go away faster than you want it to. 
All of the things of this world are passing away. What Jesus is calling us to do is to divorce ourselves from the cares and the concerns and the stuff of this world and to marry ourselves to him. And the promise of the Beatitudes is this. When we do, there is joy everlasting in the here and now and in the there and then that awaits us in the fullness of the coming of the kingdom. This is why we are different this is why we see the world differently. This is why we respond to crisis differently than the world around us. Not because of who we are, but because of whose we are. Because we have come to know the sovereign Lord of all the earth who's made all things all right for us. This is why in the moment of greatest difficulty, in the height of suffering, we are able to say that in our weakness, he is strong, that Christ is our sufficiency. When all is stripped away and we're left but only with but only Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is enough. And this is a hard sale to make in an affluent culture. But you've learned by your own personal experience that this is true. You may not yet know the blessedness of walking with Jesus, but every person here, lost and saved alike, know that the things of this world cannot bring you satisfaction. In fact, the deeper into sin you delve, the more immediate the consequences become. What brings you the highest heights of happiness and satisfaction temporarily can, can be followed by the deepest depths of depression and sadness, pain, and suffering. In the old days, the wildest nights were always followed by the worst mornings. You've experienced that in your own personal lives. You know it to be true. It's written in the constitution of the cosmos. And Jesus speaks to this concept here. Promising that if we come away from the things of this world, that what we find in him is not just eternal life, but abundant life. Not this puritanical existence where we sort of drag ourselves through life full of pain and agony and misery and depressed and discouragement happy and joyous and glad because Jesus is the king of our life. Could I, could I just invite you today to taste and to see that our God is good. That it's good to walk with Jesus. There's joy in walking with Jesus. That you're not walking away from anything that matters or will last in the first place. Which is why Jesus says, don't lay up treasures where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in to steal, but in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and there are no thieves to steal. Jesus again calling us to a radically different perspective. Would you look to the Lord Jesus Christ today with eyes of faith? Ask for the forgiveness of sin, the promise of heaven's eternal life. Would you turn to Jesus away from the things of this world. Can I just say to you, days away from a presidential election, for those of you who have been so fixated on your news station of choice and are vexed in your spirit about the future of America, that if you'll turn away from the 24-hour news cycle and unto Jesus, you'll find that it has a, a, a peace-giving effect on the soul. America may fall, but the kingdom of God will always stand. Jesus has written it in the constitution of the kingdom that our joy is found in Christ and in Christ alone.